Recorded by The Way in Brea. Lead pastor Von Jarrett has a heart for the people at The Way and a desire to reach the lost. The Way's production department prays this message is a blessing to you and that you find yourself closer to God through application. So we started our January series uh, beginning of this year, obviously, and it's titled The Archetype. And I think it's been so good. I don't know about for the rest of you. Well, three of us, it sounds like. It's been so good for the three of us. But I'm wondering why. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Right? That we come into faith. We come to understand who Jesus is by hearing the word of God. And that's where our faith has grown. So, so far in 2020, uh, what we've heard is the word of God, as we've looked at the archetype, we've looked at who he is, focusing on Jesus. And what we've seen is people coming to faith. Every single week, somebody is getting saved. Every single week, not only are people coming to faith, but people are going deeper into their faith. We mentioned it already that, that people are getting baptized even this morning. What they're saying is, my faith is good. My faith in Christ is secure. However, I want to go further with God. I want to go deeper into my relationship with him. How does that happen? It happens through the word of God. It's not atmosphere. It's not instruments. It's by the word of God and his promises coming true. Amen? Amen. On Friday night, Mary and I had the chance to, to lead the youth here, and we rarely get a chance to do that. We like the kids, but for some reason, I don't think I'm all that old, but they look at me like an old person. They don't want me around. Uh, but so we had an opportunity to come here and, and lead the youth on Friday night, and we were blown away by the impact that your actual youth leaders are having on our youth. The things that they're ministering to them, uh, the way that they're loving them, the way that they communicate and reach out to one another. It was really special to be here on Friday night. As we, as we led them and we worshiped with them and we prayed with them, I was amazed by their ability to uh, get into the word of God, to pray with us and with one another, to, to just be open to what God was doing. I was just kind of taken aback. You know, I reminded me when I was young, I was up till two o'clock in the morning. I wouldn't stop talking to Mary all night. Like, these kids are amazing. I want to be in the youth. <laughs> Making my case right now to come back. Um, so why are these things happening, though? And how can we see more of these things happening? Yes. I just read a, a good portion of Matthew chapter six. I want to read one of the last verses um, Matthew 6.33 said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Amen. Right? In the scripture, when we were first reading it right now, it was talking about 
placement of God and, and, and money or placement of God and your marriage or God and whatever it is, it's, it's this order, this hierarchy, right? And I began to ask myself, God, why are you doing these things as we start this year? We've seen you over the course of the, the 12 years that we've been a church, but it just seems like something special, something unique is happening uh, again, some type of revival, some type of something special. And then this, this scripture came to mind again, just seek first the kingdom of God. Like, when I'm here with these youth and when their leaders are there and all the other things that we're doing, we're not thinking about all the petty stuff. All we're thinking about is God do something in their life. Yeah. When we come in on a Sunday morning, uh, we can set aside for a few minutes our drama and our problems and who's fighting with who and who's got a different perspective on this and that. And we can just say, we want to give you all of our focus, Lord. We want to seek first the kingdom and your righteousness. And we just believe everything else will be taken care of. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing some of the things that we're seeing. And I want us to continue to see that. So I just wanted to encourage you guys, put God first and seek the kingdom first. Amen? Amen. When we have issues and we have difficulties, ask yourself, stop for a minute, is my focus on the kingdom? Is my focus on the things of God and what he's doing? Not just in my life, not just in my family, but in the church. And not just the church that's the way here in Brea, but the church that is global. Right? And it just gives you a different perspective on things. So the archetype, how can we think that way? How can we live that way? How can we seek first the kingdom? Uh, again, it comes back to this archetype. Jesus is our archetype. Let me give you the definition of an archetype. It says it's the original pattern or model of which all things of the same type are representations or copies of. So you have the first one, the prototype, the archetype, and everything that comes after is just a representation or a model. It's a reproduction of that original. Another one says that the archetype is most commonly used to mean a perfect example of something. So without blemish, without wax, right? Sincere, uh, the original, the OG, it's the way that it's supposed to be. There's nothing wrong with it. It is perfect. Everything else is going to have some type of, um, some type of wax within it, um, some type of uh, blemish within it. So Jesus is the archetype of so many different things. Um, the reason that we built this series, uh, it came from a gentleman in the 1800s named Carl Jung, and he gave us 12 archetypes. And as I read through them, see if any of them uh, uh, spark your interest and say, hey, that's probably me. That's kind of how I am. He gave us 12 archetypes of different types of people. The sage, which is like the wise man, the innocent, the explorer, the ruler, the creator, the caregiver, the magician, the hero, the rebel, the lover, the jester, and the orphan. He says most people or all people are going to fall into one primary category uh, of these types of people. You might have, you know, others sprinkled into who you are, and you can identify anybody by one of these 12, he says. What we said here as a church, as we've gone through this series, is we've made the claim that Jesus is not just an archetype of personality types, but he's the archetype of humanity itself. Right? So he's the perfect version of man, of woman, of person, of human, not just uh, the perfect version of one of these types of people. Right? He encompasses all the personalities, and he's the best of all these areas. He's the best of men. He's the best of what humanity has to offer and what we should be in pursuit of. He's without blemish. Amen? Amen. So what have we seen so far? We saw the archetype of the caregiver says that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He says he came for the sick. He came to give care. That first week, we also saw that Jesus allowed himself to be cared for, right? People would come to him and, and anoint him with oil, 
Right? People would come to him and serve him and feed him. We always read the stories of all the things that he did for others, but he allowed himself also to be served. And he's our archetype. He is teaching us how to be served. And, and so far, it's been one of the most impactful messages. People are still calling and texting and asking questions and wrestling with it. How do you allow Jesus to serve you? When you typically come to church, you're going to hear, serve God, give to God, do something for the kingdom. You're not doing enough. You need to do more. God deserves your best. All those things are true. <laughs> However, Jesus says, I want to serve you. You can't do any of those things unless I'm healing you, unless I am uh, sanctifying you, unless I'm fixing the things in your life that are broken. And many of us don't know how to allow Jesus to, uh, to care for us and to serve us. So week one, I thought was pretty special. In week two, we saw Jesus is the archetype of the rebel, right? Jesus rebelled against a church that was doing things and teaching things that were not uh, in order with what his father really wanted. One of the examples we saw is the Sabbath, and they kept trying to get Jesus for, for healing or working on the Sabbath, and he just rebelled against it. He said, listen, just because you guys misinterpreted what my father's word says, I'm not going to fall in line with you just because you're the church. What I'm going to do is what my father really wants me to do. And he told the man, reach out your hand. It was withered, and he healed him right there on the spot. He continued to rebel against anything that was out of order with what his father really wanted. One of the things we saw about the rebel also, though, was that he, Jesus was able to rebel without breaking laws and without breaking commandments and without dishonoring father and without dishonoring mother. He had this ability to be perfect. And we said that we want to be like that. We want to rebel against the things that are ungodly. We want to pursue God, but we also want to stay in line with his word when we rebel. Amen. Right? And last week, uh, one of our elders and pastors, Raymond, he spoke and taught, taught us about Jesus as the archetype of the creator. I took a lot of good notes, man. I thought your message was powerful. He said that uh, Jesus created everything that exists, and he didn't personally need anything that he created. Think about that for a second. Everything that exists, Jesus created. He's the creator of all things, but he didn't need anything he created. So why did he create? He created it for you. He created it for me. What a special archetype. What a special God that is. Another thing that he said that's in my notes is that um, Jesus, as the archetype of the creator, he loves to reveal himself through his creation. So you and I, when we see something new and we look at it or we experience it or we touch it and all of a sudden we begin to think about God, Jesus is smiling, saying, that's why I made it. <laughs> That's why I made that, so that you could see it, so that you could go to the beach and surf it, so that you could go to the mountains and ride them, so that you could do these things and you would look up and say, God, you made this for me. And our creator, that archetype, he loves it when we connect that dot and we're like, that's who you are. Raymond, that was, that was good stuff, man. Good stuff, dude. Good stuff. That desire that each and every one of us have, or we see humanity has this desire to create, don't we? We want to go to the moon. <laughs> we want to drive electric cars. We want all kinds of stuff. We want to tell Google to turn on the, the lights and make me dinner. <laughs> we, we just want to create, and it comes from the archetype. It comes from him because he's the creator. So this morning, we're going to see Jesus as the archetype of the magician. The archetype of the magician. Carl Jung says this about the, the magician. This is the definition he gave in the 1800s. The magician is like a great revolutionary. They regenerate and renew, not just for themselves, but for others as well. And they're constantly growing and transforming. That's his definition of a, of a magician. The idea is that the magician takes the elements and he manipulates them. 
Uh, they bend reality in a way that produces something novel or something astonishing, right? They take what's available to them, they take reality, and they try to move it and shift it and bend it, make something that astonishes people. And they use that ability to impact others around them. That's what the magician does. They're constantly growing, he says, and transforming because they're trying to find new ways to astonish people and to wow people and keep them coming back, right? If you see the same trick, you're over it. There's got to be a new trick. There's got to be something new that astonishes, all right? I've got a, a, a short video I want you guys to see. Go ahead, Ray.
Sorry about that middle portion, I didn't watch that part. <laughs> and uh, not really part of the message, but I wanted to touch on it real quick. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, some of the drawings on the deck of cards, some of the tattoos, some of the things underneath, uh, you'll get a chance later to, uh, to look into some of that stuff, but uh, magic. Why do we love magic so much? Why do we like this idea of somebody making something impossible look possible? Happening right in front of our face, we like that, that feeling of, man, is that possible? Can that really happen? How did you do that? Something inside of us also wants the magician to have some type of superhuman power that makes him capable of doing these, uh, these types of feats and these things that we've never seen before. I think another thing that's interesting about us, though, is that we, we also like to go behind the scenes. Some of you will watch the shows where it says how they debunk them and how these tricks are actually done and, and what's really happening behind the scenes uh, for them to be able to do some of these tricks. In the scriptures, we see that magic, though, is not just fun and games, right? We see that uh, there truly are dark arts. There are sorcerers. There are people who are actually capable of doing some pretty miraculous things when you read through your scriptures. Uh, I want to read a couple of, of stories to you guys to try to paint some of that picture. This is Exodus chapter 7, verse 8. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall show to Aaron, or you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh. Let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so. Just as the Lord commanded, and Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So even though Aaron and Moses are there and they, they throw down their rod and these uh, sorcerers that work for Pharaoh throw down their rods, they all turn to serpents. Uh, Moses and Aaron, their rod eats their rod and they show this kind of power and authority. But what happens afterwards is they go through this battle uh, of who can do what, what kind of magic, what kind of sorcery. And they're able to do almost everything that Aaron and Moses were able to do. You guys ever thought about that? Yeah. Almost everything that they were able to do. Let me share a few other scriptures that talk about magic and sorcery and witchcraft and divination. This is 2 Chronicles 33.6. says, He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hunnam, and he practiced witchcraft, used divination, practiced sorcery, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And this is one of the leaders of Israel. Zechariah 10.2 says that diviners see lying visions and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep and they are afflicted because there is no shepherd. It says that people are coming to them saying, what should we do? Where should we go? How do we find the Lord? It says diviners and sorcerers are giving them false information and lead them in the wrong direction. Isaiah 8.19 says, when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards and whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? I love this one. It's not that these things don't exist. He's saying, why would you do that? These people are dead. These arts are dead and they lead to death. Why would you do that on behalf of the living? 
Acts chapter 16, verse 16, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. And he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. So many crazy things in the scriptures says that she was possessed by a spirit of divination, and this spirit of divination that was within this young girl was actually saying the right things. She knew who they were, she knew who they were servants of, and she was proclaiming it, right? It says that she brought her masters much profit because she was a fortune teller. People would come to her like they go to tarot card readers today, right? and palm readers today. This is Isaiah chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness. God begins to make these statements and these claims about who he is compared to who these other magicians and soothsayers are. And the last one, Deuteronomy 18, 9 says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. I think it's amazing that God would have to make this statement uh, to his people, he says, when you basically for us, when you get saved, when you enter into the kingdom, when you enter into the land, when you get there, you're dispossessing people that practice these things. And I do not want that involved in your lives. Amen. He doesn't say it doesn't exist. He doesn't say, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. He doesn't say, let your kids watch it and play with Ouija boards. <laughs> right. He says it's real. and I don't want you to be involved in it whatsoever. Amen. So I wanted to give this background so that we can see the imitations and the darkness and the warnings uh, to flee from these things, but more importantly, uh, so that we would seek the real thing and seek the light and seek the archetype. I think many of us, I mean, hopefully we're mature enough to understand that we should not get involved in these things and play with these things. I've, I've actually been amazed with how many people I've met uh, who have come into the church and have told me about just things they've been involved in, things they used to do, things their family does. Uh, one, one of our families uh, tells a story of how their mom would take coffee or some kind of coffee and finish it and turn it upside down and then read it and these things would happen. I'm like, really? This is crazy. <laughs> so I think we, we grow and we mature and like, hey, we should not be involved in that kind of stuff. But how many of us are actually seeking the archetype of those things? How many of us are, are seeking the light? How many of us are seeking uh, for where these things actually come from? I'll tell you this this morning. There is one who is not doing magic, but he is doing miracles. Amen. There's one who's not using sleight of hand and smoke and mirrors, but he's actually controlling reality and making the impossible possible. Yes. Think about that for a second. This ain't sleight of hand. This ain't smoke and mirrors. He's saying, I can change reality and I can make the impossible possible. Yes. Amen. This Jesus and his power 
it impacts everybody, the magicians and the common folk like you and I. I want to look at a few stories this morning concerning Jesus, this archetype of the magician. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 5. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. There was a great joy in that city, but there was a certain man called Simon, say Simon, Simon. who previously practiced sorcery in the city, and he astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man Simon is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and he was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come, when they had come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, the Spirit had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands, of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands, that they may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you've spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Another wonderful story. So God comes into this city of the Samaritans and he's moving through his servants. Unclean spirits are coming out of people. People who are possessed are being exercised. People who are paralyzed and lame are being healed. People are being baptized left and right. right? And then what happens is Philip and the gospel of Jesus Christ come up against Simon and a long time of sorcery in this community. And this is what we see happens in verse 12. It says... The people believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and men and women were baptized. Jesus and his power, right, it supersedes uh, the enemy and his imitations. The Lord is not afraid of these things. That's not why he's telling us to flee. He knows who is the most powerful, right? I said earlier that it impacts the magicians and the commoners because you can see that sometimes the magicians are compelled to come to God when they encounter uh, the real thing and the archetype. Simon's loving it. Everybody's coming to him, the least and the greatest in the city, and he's doing all these sorceries, probably helping people and telling them what's going to happen in their lives. 
And then he encounters Philip and he encounters this power of Jesus and he encounters the gospel and it says that he gives his life. He's like, man, I know the difference between what I'm doing and what you guys are doing. He can see the difference. It doesn't always happen that way, right? Sometimes people would rather say, look, I know the real thing, but I'm going to keep my influence. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and the sway that I have over a certain group of people. Maybe it's the sway that I have over my wife, right? She doesn't need to, to surrender to Jesus and the real thing. I'll be the authority. Maybe it's the way that we parent. Maybe it's who knows what it is. But oftentimes it's like this with, with Simon where he says, that's the real thing. What I've been doing is not the real thing, and I'm going to surrender unto that. Simon struggled with how to do it, though, right? He comes in, he says, I want what you got. I want to get baptized too. I want to serve God. And the next thing you know, he sees uh, this power, continued power, not just people getting saved and healed, but this idea of baptism and this filling with the Holy Spirit. And he says, I want that. How much does it cost? How much does it cost to get what you got? How can I buy that title? How can I buy that position? How can I get into that role? And, uh, And Peter jumps all over him. It's like, nah. You better repent. You better pray. You have no part with us now. You, you think that this is like everything else, like the skills that you have and you developed that you got from somebody else and was handed down to you or that you paid for somehow. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. What I love about Simon, though, is that uh, I think he really wanted the things of God. and He really wanted to change. He says, listen, I, I don't even want to pray for myself. Will you guys pray for me? That the things you said might happen to me, I don't want that to happen to me. Will you pray to God for me? And he goes on to be led. He goes on to be discipled. He goes on to be taught how to really serve God. Next one is Acts chapter 19, verse 1. It says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. Say disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they, and he's, excuse me. They said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, in what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him in whom would come after him, and that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke with tongues. They prophesied. Now, the men were about 12 in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some who... Some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, over, 
overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Listen to this part. And many who had believed uh, came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Man, I want the archetype. I don't want that imitation fake stuff. The real one. The one. Come on. So the first thing we see here again is baptism, right? Teaching that there's a filling with the Holy Spirit that is different than the salvation presence of the Spirit. Can't get into everything this morning, but you see this idea that you get saved, you give your life to Jesus. The only way that happens is if the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and your heart to who Jesus is. And then Paul comes and he says, hey, do you have the Spirit? Are you filled with the Spirit? They said, we don't know anything about the Spirit. He says, well, what did you get baptized into? They said, just repentance and forgive us of sins, and we just wanted Jesus. And he says, that's amazing, that's great, but now you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he baptizes them, and he lays hands on them, and they begin to be filled with the Holy Spirit in a special way. This gospel and this spirit-empowered living is going forth, comes into an area again, and not the bad people, the good people. These are priests and sons of priests, and they say, I want to do what what Paul's doing, right? Like, look it, I'm seeing people be exercised. We've been living with these people. We've been doing church all this time, and these people are still possessed. Paul comes into the city with this Holy Spirit, and he's exercising. He's being used to, to exercise these demons out of people. And they say, I want to do that same thing. So they say, in the name of, of the Jesus whom Paul preaches. That's not how it works, church. Like, you got to know Jesus. Yes. He can't be a friend of a friend. The homie has this, this guy that he knows, and like, I'm telling you, he's awesome and capable of stuff, and in his name, let your marriage be healed. No. That's not how it works. And they tried this with good intention as as good people. And it says that the demon says, listen, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. Who do you think you are? We don't do imitation around here. This is the demon talking. The sad thing is there's a lot of people who proclaim to be Christians and cannot honestly say, Jesus, I know. Beats them naked, sends them running off down the street for trying to play church, right? But look at what happens. This is the same thing, right? The, the power of God, the archetype, the real Jesus, his power encounters the fake thing, right? And there's this explosion when they come together. But look at what the result is. <clears throat> In verse 13, <clears throat> or excuse me, verse 17 says, This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, Fear fell on them all. The name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. When the archetype is recognized and experienced, we won't be able to settle for imitations. The people came saying, I want the real thing. I want to really repent. I want to really serve Jesus. I want to be in his presence. I want to be empowered by him. I want to be filled with his spirit. Here's everything I used to be involved in. Yeah. 
here's all my magic book, here's all my sorceries, here's all the people that I used to go to looking for help, looking for change and transformation, looking for impact in my life. You can have it all, Lord. That's the result when you really encounter the power of God. No Christian goes back to a palm reader. No Christian goes back uh, to their horoscopes that they used to read. Horoscope? A horoscope? Don't get me wrong. I remember being unsaved and like somebody would read your horoscope. I'm like, dang, man, that's it. I'm an Aries. That's me. <laughs> Hard-headed. Think they know everything. Blah, blah, blah. Get out of here with that anymore. I know Jesus now. I got the real thing. You can keep the imitation. I know there's some reality in it because when I read the scriptures, God tells me to stay away from that stuff because when you read those things, you see the reality. You recognize that there's something to it, right? And then you get caught in it like so many others did. But if you're a real Christian, you should have experienced the real thing and say, no, that, that has no more room in my life anymore. Amen. Grandma, read the coffee cup for me. <laughs> we got a Bible. Yeah. I got a Bible now. I don't need you to tell me how this relationship is going to work out. Grandma? I don't need the, the, the tarot card reader to tell me if I'm going to come into some money soon. I don't need somebody to tell me that if I uh, burn this incense and drink this tea, that some healing is going to happen in my body. Amen. I know the scriptures now. I see the real thing. I, I, I recognize the archetype. And you know what he says? He says, sometimes I heal, sometimes I don't, but it doesn't matter if you have eternal life, you're coming to me either way. Yes. I've seen the real thing. So I want to close with this. I want to look at Jesus doing these miraculous works as the archetype in person rather than through his servants. What we've seen so far is the aftermath, right? The book of Acts and these other stories where Jesus has come, Jesus has called, right? He's called apostles, he's called disciples, he's empowered men, he's empowered women, and we see what the church is now today, how it started, right? in power and in presence and in baptisms and in Holy Spirit. But I want to see just a few quick stories as we close um, where Jesus is doing it himself. All right? The real thing. This is John chapter 8, verse 1. If you can't tell, I like the Bible. You're hearing more of the scripture than anything else this morning. John chapter 8, verse 1 says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and he wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not even hear them. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, Who, or excuse me, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience, they went out one by one beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. 
Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus makes condemnation and sin disappear. Talk about a magician. Think about that for a second. He encounters this woman. You, you see people on videos doing magic. You see street magic. You see all these things that you know at the end of the day. It's not really real, right? This woman gets caught in adultery in the very act. She's pulled out of the bed with somebody that she's not married to and taken at the feet of Jesus, right? And she came with condemnation. She came with sin. She came with accusation, right? And in this moment with Jesus, he makes all those things disappear. He says, what, what happened to your condemnation? It's gone. What happened to your sin? It's not that it didn't happen. It's, it's been made to disappear. Right. That's what the archetype of these things is capable of doing in our lives. Tell me that's not miraculous. Tell me that's not beyond the realm of possible. Amen. Tell me that's not suspending the natural order of how things are supposed to work. That's the archetype saying, I do the impossible. And I'm sure she knew it just like many of us have known it when we've encountered him, like nobody else could do that. Yeah. Nobody else could do that, only you. Yeah. Look at what he did, it says, that, it says that one by one they all left that were gonna stone her and it says it started with the oldest and this is just something that I believe is that it starts with the oldest because he says, he who has no sin, throw the first rock. The older you are, the more you understand about your sin yeah. and the more sin you've committed. So the oldest guy there is like, dang. <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. I'm disqualified. I'm out. <laughs> and then the youngest person there is still like, I've got sin of my own. I could be in her position condemned right now. If, if, if only people knew what I was involved in, yeah. I'd be the one in her position. And Jesus is teaching everybody. That's why he's just writing on the floor. He says, I don't condemn you. What a magician. Who can make sin disappear? Another one, Luke chapter 22, verse 47. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus turns enemies into friends, and he turns those who hate him into those who love him. Tell me that's not suspending reality. Tell me that's not making the impossible possible. This person comes to either kill or arrest and beat Jesus. And next thing you know, Jesus is healing his ear and he becomes a lover of Jesus in one minute. In one moment, I hate him, but now I love him. I want to arrest him, but now I want him to be free. I don't want, I don't want to have a relationship with him, but now I don't want to leave him. I like being part of the authority and the power, right, that comes to arrest. And now I'd rather be with him and be arrested. Yes. Tell me that's not 
miraculous. The gospel tells a story of people and a church that hated Jesus. They crucified him. And just a short while later, they're worshiping him as God. The same people that told him he didn't even have a spot in the church, a short while after his death and resurrection, they're saying, you get the top spot, it's your church. That's miraculous. That's magic. (laughs) That's suspending the realm of possible. That never happens. First Timothy chapter one, verse 12 says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. This is Paul, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it all in ignorance and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Another miracle, Jesus turned sinners into saints. Jesus turned sinners into saints, not just enemies into lovers, sinners into saints. Paul was a murderer and a persecutor of the church, and he's transformed into a leader and a missionary. It's magic. (laughs) Think about this for a second, church. Paul was not just granted access into the church or into the kingdom, right? It'd be one thing to say, like, look, man. God's so good that even though you're so bad, he's going to let you be part of the church. Jesus says, not only can you be part of the church, but you can be a leader. I'll put my life in your hands. Think about that for a second. One of his greatest enemies, and he says, listen, I'll put my word in your hands. I'll put my life in your, I'll trust you to go tell the rest of the world. You're like a cupbearer. The cupbearer stood before the king, and every time they brought something to drink, he would taste it to see if it was poisonous to make sure he protected the life of the king. That's what God did in Paul's life. He says, you went from being one of my enemies to my most trusted one. It's magic. It's miraculous. You've never heard that before. You've never seen that before, and he still offers it to every one of us. From his greatest enemy, Paul says, I am chief. You know what the Christian story is supposed to produce in us? That each and every one of us would say, I'm chief. I'm the worst of all sinners. And then Jesus says to you, I trust you more than anyone. It's miraculous. It's beyond the realm of possibility. And it suspends the natural order of how things are supposed to work. This is the last one. This is John chapter 11, verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but he was in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and he was troubled. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind 
also have kept this man from dying. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they might believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Jesus weeps. And then Jesus calls the dead to life. It's miraculous. It suspends reality. It goes beyond the realm of possibility. It's amazing to me that he's still doing those things today. But a lot of us are still looking for the imitation. He can turn sinners to saints enemies to lovers, and he raises the dead to life. Over and over and over and over again. He's the archetype. He's the beginning of all the things that you have ever dreamed of and hoped for. They're found in him. So what we've heard this morning and what we're about to, uh, like I said earlier, be witness to is the continuation of Jesus, the archetype, who does the impossible, and we get to see it at work. Every time that we get a chance to be in the word, every time that we get a chance to, to witness baptisms, uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but I see and I feel these scriptures. Every time somebody gets saved, I don't see it as I just raised my hand and went into a church. I see it as like Philip coming into a city and people are being coming out of darkness and into light. Exorcisms are happening. Histories are being abolished. Just like a woman who comes in with condemnation and sin, and in a moment, they get to leave free, completely set free. Amen. Nothing like it, church. Nothing like it. I want to pray. I want to worship with you. I'm going to ask the worship team if you'd come. As we've been going through this, this series, um, one of the things that I've just been praying about and I'm asking you guys to pray about is every week... Asking yourself, how does that apply to me? This caregiver who wants to serve me as well. This archetype of the rebel that wants me to be rebellious when it comes to the things that are not of God. This archetype of the creator that has created everything for my behalf. What am I supposed to be seeing in his creation and how is that supposed to draw me to him? <clears throat> And this morning, the archetype of the magician who's doing miracles and doing wonders and doing signs and what that's supposed to produce in us. Why don't we stand? I was nowhere you came to my rescue From the grave I've been raised When I needed a savior to save me Jesus, you made a way
The Way would love you to visit our church at 451 West Lambert Road, Suite 204 in the city of Brea. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.thewaybrea.com or you can download our church app by visiting your app store and searching The Way Brea. Be blessed.